This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. 1968. It was one of the most consequential years in modern American politics. A sitting president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, deciding not to seek another term in office as the war in Vietnam continued to escalate. In what was a bitterly divided Democratic primary, Senator Robert F. Kennedy enters the race late and in early June is gunned down by an assassin's bullet after winning the California primary. Vice President Hubert Humphrey goes on to secure the nomination at a convention torn apart by the anti-war protesters in the streets of Chicago. And running on what he called a law and order campaign, Richard Nixon is elected 37th president. It was one of the closest elections in American history. Pat Buchanan had a front row seat to that campaign, serving as a speechwriter and aide to Richard Nixon. He joins us from his home in Virginia. And my first question is your most vivid memory of that campaign year. Well, I think the probably the assassinations of Martin Luther King on April 4th and the assassination of Bobby Kennedy were the most dramatic moments of that campaign. I remember calling Richard Nixon uh, the night uh, that I got a call from Jeff Bell at the headquarters that Bobby Kennedy had been shot and called Nixon, and he was already up. But my own personal memory, I think, uh, Steve, would be I was at the Comrade Hilton Hotel in Chicago the night they had the so-called police riots. I was in the 19th floor of the Comrade Hilton uh, at we a suite that we had set aside for Republicans, and in the door walks Norman Mailer, and I'd been out on the street the night before with that mob in the park, Grant Park, and we heard a ruckus, and we went to the window and looked out the window, and up Balbo came this large contingent of police, and they stopped, and they split the uh, Balbo, they split Michigan Avenue, and the cops took off into that park with their truncheons and sticks, beating and clubbing and kicking the radicals who were in the park for about 15 minutes. And that was the event, I think, that defined the first half of the election of 1968, the fall election. And it led to the defeat, I think, of Hubert Humphrey. Hunter Thompson, whom I got to know, or had gotten to know, said that uh, what happened at the corner of Michigan and Balbo elected Richard Nixon president. I want to come back to the streets of Chicago, but you also brought up the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in April of 1968. That evening in Indianapolis, Senator Robert F. Kennedy with these remarks. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. That was nearly 50 years ago, and the anger, the frustration, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations we're seeing today again resonating in 2020. Uh, I recall that uh, dramatically and very well. King was in Memphis, and no one was really paying much attention to the strike of the garbage workers down there at that time. King, frankly, had lost much of his his prestige because he had come out so vigorously and energetically against the war, which was still supported. But I remember that very well, and we had a meeting of the Nixon staff as to whether Nixon should go to the funeral. And Nixon took the, uh, took the issue to himself. 
He flew down to Atlanta. He went to see Mrs. King, Miss uh, Coretta Scott King, even before the funeral. He went to see Daddy King, Dr. King's father, went on to Key Biscayne. Dwight Chapin tells the story in a new book he's going to have coming out. But after that, the riots, and, and these were really much more violent than what we've seen today. The looting and burning was done in 100 cities. They had National Guard and federal troops out in the District of Columbia, which took one of the worst beatings, my hometown, all up 7th Street and 14th Street. It was burned out and gutted and looted, and it happened all over the country. But, Steve, let me tell you, that was, I think, the last of the great racial riots of the 1960s, which began with Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant in 64, Watts in 65, Newark and... uh, and Detroit in 1967, and the 100 cities after King's assassination. And I think that was, it was a dramatic turning point in American history, but the racial riots really burned themselves out at that point. And after that, by and large, it was anti-war demonstrations and riots that took place when Nixon became president. And yet the wounds of that period have now really become very real again today. Well, in, indeed they have. What has happened, though, it's, I think, and in, in, it's sad in a way. What it says is the Great Society and all the Civil Rights Acts that were passed from 1964 through 1968, they really did not succeed in really bringing us together when we've broken apart here on the, on the issue of Black Lives Matter and all the rest. And while the demonstrations and riots and and looting here have been pandemic in the U.S. I don't this this time. I don't equate them in terms of real violence with what happened in the in the uh, after Dr. King's assassination. But they are much more ideological. You see, and uh, New York Times has a story this morning. There really is a a pogrom against all the figures of Western history the white folks who have ruled or imposed their rule upon American Indians and upon African-Americans in slavery up until 1865 and segregation. And the protests have taken the form of tearing down statues of everyone involved, if you will, in the creation of Western civilization in North America and the Western Hemisphere. This is uh, more dramatic and more ideological. That was just a what happened after Dr. King's death was sort of an outburst of rage and anger and bitterness and sorrow over what had happened to an iconic figure of the movement. Incidentally, Steve, uh, I had been also at the March on, jo- on Washington for jobs and freedom back in 1963. I grew up in D.C. and I came home to D.C. just to go to that march. And it was one of the most positive, uplifting I've ever seen. I wasn't more than 10 or 15 yards from Dr. King when he delivered his famous speech. And of course, just a couple of months... And, of course, just a couple of months later, the assassination of John Kennedy, which led to Lyndon Johnson becoming the next president of the United States. But how surprised were you in March of 1968 when Johnson announced to the country that he would not seek another term? Well, let me tell you a story. Um, We were planning a speech on the Vietnam War at the end of March in Nixon's camp because of the Tet Offensive. Things had changed. And it was going to be a more dovish speech than Nixon had ever delivered. 
and I was opposed to it, and we were up in Nixon's apartment with Dick Whalen and Ray Price discussing it with Nixon. It was going to be delivered on, a, on Saturday. We got a phone call from Frank Shakespeare. He said, Johnson has asked for time tomorrow night, Sunday, on national television. So Nixon canceled his speech. He headed for Wisconsin, which was having a primary April 2nd, and told me to wait in a car at Butler Terminal for him when he came back in his Learjet from Wisconsin. And I was in the car and to listen to the speech and tell him what Johnson said and convey it to him on this little plane before he had to get out and meet the press. And I was in the car and listening to that, and we had the African-American driver and chauffeur, and Johnson at the end said he wasn't going to run. And the chauffeur said, I knew it, I said it, and I said, move the car down to that plane before the press gets to Nixon so I can tell him what's happened. So I went up and told him on the plane, and he came out and said, it looks like the year of the dropout. He meant, of course, that Romney had dropped out of New Hampshire. Rockefeller had dropped out rather than run. And here was Lyndon Johnson on March 31st, dropping out of the presidential race and leaving it wide open and pointing to the fact to me, Nixon and I discussed it going into his home. And I told him that I thought the probable nominee would be Humphrey now. And I thought Humphrey was the strongest candidate the Democrats could run. The reason was that Humphrey not only would have the support of LBJ and Connolly and all the others, but he could—he had real roots in the African-American community for his civil rights work, and he could unite the party. And whereas Johnson obviously could not, and Bobby Kennedy, I felt, could not. So, uh, but that was a, an extraordinarily dramatic moment. But as you know, the Kennedy supporters insist, had he lived having won some of those primaries, including California, it would have been hard to take the nomination away from RFK. Not so. Not so. I think it, I mean, uh, he, he would have, RFK would have had a hard time and impossibility of taking the nomination away from Humphrey. Because in those days, there only we only went in a half dozen primaries ourselves that were active, Nixon on the Republican side, and the, and the Democrats did not have any many more and Bobby Kennedy wasn't getting all the delegates, even in uh, in the states he won. And I don't think he would have gotten the nomination. But if he had gotten the nomination, Nixon Nixon would have won Texas, and Nixon would have won, uh, and, and and he would have had to run against compete against Wallace. And you know, Bobby Kennedy, despite what folks said about him, he didn't have the reach in the African American community before his death that Hubert Humphrey had. Humphrey was the architect of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. He was one of the leading proponents of civil rights uh, in American politics. So I don't think he would have gotten the nomination. If Bobby had gotten the nomination, he would never have beaten uh, Richard Nixon. You're listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly, a look back at the 1968 campaign and lessons for 2020. More with our conversation with Pat Buchanan in just a moment. The President's from Public Affairs, available now in paperback and ebook. Presents biographies of every president, organized by their ranking by noted historians, from best to worst, and features perspectives into the lives of our nation's chief executives and leadership styles. Visit our website, cspan.org slash the presidents, to learn more about each president and historian featured, and order your copy today. Wherever books and ebooks are sold. 
This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington, and we're talking with Pat Buchanan. His reflections on the 1968 campaign, and you mentioned the demonstrations in the streets of Chicago. Here is how it was covered by CBS News. No more the peace groups are demanding permission to march on Convention Hall the night the Democrats nominate their candidate for president. With thousands of protesters expected, 12,000 Chicago police officers were deployed along with the National Guard. A Democratic convention is about to begin in a police state. There just doesn't seem to be any other way to say it. CBS News coverage of the Democratic convention in Chicago and Pat Buchanan. How damaging were those images to the Humphrey campaign? And how did the Nixon campaign try to use that to your advantage? Well, in, inside the convention hall, uh, Humphrey was nominated and and after Bobby had been shot, Abe Ribicoff nominated uh, George McGovern as sort of a replacement for Bobby Kennedy. And he said from the podium, uh, if we had George McGovern as nominee or something to that effect, we wouldn't have, quote, Gestapo tactics in the streets of Chicago. And he looked right down at Mayor Richard Day Daly, who had cupped his hands over his mouth to cover up what he was saying to Ribicoff which was unprintable. But out in the streets, uh, this riot, police riot as they called it, and the police really did, they overdid it, but I would have been down there, and frankly I thought that rioters or the crowd in the park, uh, the rabble down there, they had been cursing and spitting on the cops and doing all manner of obscene things out there in front of the police line. I thought they were getting a measure of what they deserved. And so I went home and I wrote Nixon a memo. I was saying, you know, you know, you can't very we can't endorse everything the police did, but basically they're on our side, and the people behind them, these are our people. If we want them, this is the silent majority, and I use that phrase, and uh, this is the silent majority upon which we can build a new coalition, a presidential coalition here, and what we did back in Nixon's headquarters was this. We scheduled the first event Nixon had, which was right after the Chicago Convention, right after um, Labor Day, for Chicago. It was a motorcade through the streets of Chicago. And what the country saw was Nixon moving, standing in a limo, open limo, going through the streets of Chicago, being cheered peacefully by hundreds of thousands of people and welcome to the city, whereas all those folks in Chicago and across the country had witnessed what had happened two weeks before, and the contrast was dramatic and intended to be so. And what it was saying was, look, Richard Nixon leads a united party that can unite the nation, whereas Humphrey leads a party that is torn torn apart three ways, into the, the radical left and anti-war hardliners, the Humphrey Johnson Center, and the George Wallace uh, and the George Wallace populist right. Wallace was then running as a uh, independent candidate. He had not run in the Democratic primaries. And of course, that really was the framework of what was referred to as the law and order campaign by Richard Nixon, including this ad. Here's a portion. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. Dissent is a necessary ingredient of change. But in a system of government that provides for peaceful change, there is no cause that justifies resort to violence. Let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. 
So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. And Pat Buchanan, there are some who refer to that campaign and Richard Nixon's message and the parallels to what we're seeing today with President Trump. Is that a fair equation? Well, it was, we were the out party, the Republicans were. And it's, I think quite obviously, uh, President Trump has taken the phrase law and order and using it, and, and as we did ourselves. But in 1968, there were a couple of things that were seemed to me were different. First, you had the, not only the disorders and the riots out in the Chicago, but you also had an explosion of crime and violence in society all during the 1960s, partly due, incidentally, to the maturing of the baby boom babies who had been born in 1946, 47, 48, all of whom were coming of age, the largest generation we ever had. And a lot of those young people, especially in the minority communities, were becoming involved in street crime, and it became a huge issue. Law and order referenced also street crime and uh, violence, robberies, murders, rapes, all the rest of it, as well as the disorders. So I think that I haven't seen, I mean, Nixon used it as one of his issues, but the, the major issues, I think, was well, number one, we can get win peace with honor in Vietnam. Vietnam was an overriding issue. Secondly, we can unify the country that the D- Democratic Party cannot. Johnson can't go to a single campus without a hostile demonstration. And third, I think we'll deal with the issue of law and order. During that campaign, uh, Jeff Bell had suggested, and I had helped write, a statement uh, said that was that was captioned, D.C. should not stand for disorder and crime. And it was about June, I think, of 1968. We brought it down to D.C., the statement, and passed it out to the newspapers, and it got tremendous play. But the disorder and crime we were talking about, we had all the statistics of. The America's capital was the, I think, murder capital of the world. So all of those issues played into it. I think that Nixon's arguments, I wrote a piece for him in 1966 on on crime and disorder for U.S. News and one for Reader's Digest in 67. And Nixon used these, but it was really one of a fistful of cards, high cards he had to play. It was not the only one. Wallace was the one that George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, was the one who was really benefiting from this issue. Let me tell you, Steve, in uh, I think it was October 3rd, 1968, one month before the election. I think it was Humphrey was at 28, Wallace was at 21, or, yeah, 21, Nixon was at 43. And one month later, Humphrey was at 43. He had picked up 15 points, and almost all of them had come out of, uh, or most of the points he had picked up had come out of George Wallace. The Northern Catholics, uh, the group we had been seeking to build on, was uh, was basically moving back to the Democratic Party, whereas the Deep South stayed with Wallace. Well, in a recent column with regard to what we're seeing today and some on the left of the Democratic Party saying it's time to defund the police, you write the following. This issue, defunding police, will divide the Democratic Party more than the GOP in 2020. How so? Well, I mean, I think the proof of that is the very wise decision of Joe Biden when this slogan, defund the police, suddenly exploded and uh, was all over the media and was all over the 
the messaging from the radicals and the demonstrators and Black Lives Matter, all of them picked it up. And immediately Biden moved, no, don't defund the police. Reform the police and provide them with more resources, more money. Biden, in effect, broke with the radicals. The idea that defunding the police, which 80 percent of the American people oppose, and I think 16 percent favor, that is a lose-lose issue for the Democratic Party. So I think uh, we haven't reached that point yet in the country, but there's no doubt. I think that there's something of a conflict here, if you will, the two poles of it or the Black Lives Matter movement on the left and police and their supporters on the center right. And I think uh, I think eventually, even though the Black Lives Matter movement seems to have much more support now than the latter, I think eventually the American people have to come down on the side of their own police. Pat Buchanan, you have advised presidents, you have run for president as you look at this race in June of 2020 and look at the Trump campaign. What advice would you give the White House right now? <laughs> well, I would I would stay first stay focused on your message. The what Trump has to do, there's two things he has to do. Uh, I think to be successful. Number one, the economy's got to continue on sort of the V-shaped curve that it started back up on. That has to happen. Secondly, there has to be no second wave of this coronavirus because I think the country would be so despondent if it broke out again in September and October that it might say we just have to change. So I would stay focused on that, and I would avoid some of these peripheral battles and conflicts that attention that continually draw the president's attention in his tweets and move away from his fundamental message. I think they've got to have a disciplined campaign and a disciplined candidate, find out what is working, what is the big issue, and then drive that. Let me tell you what I think is the hidden issue here is that if this were election were a referendum, do you like Donald Trump, and do are you going to support Donald Trump, or you're not going to support Trump? The no's would defeat the yeses. However, that's not the question. The question is going to be, do you support Donald Trump or Joe Biden? The Trump campaign has to define Biden, uh, and and to do that, I think they're going to have to demonstrate that basically this issue of competence, mental agility, and ability to handle the office is a very, very powerful one, and they seem to be using that. But I think they, to me, they, it hasn't seemed a very focused message. And Pat Buchanan, you probably know this, but uh, the Trump campaign and the president himself says that he has modeled his political career in large part on Richard Nixon's career. I don't... <laughs> I'm not sure that's true. When I went to work for Richard Nixon in 1966, January... Uh, he was a legendary figure already. He'd been uh, in poly- national politics 20 years, from the Alger Hiss case to the Helen Gahagan-Douglas race to vice president for, for Dwight Eisenhower for eight years to the famous Kennedy-Nixon race, and he had helped Barry Goldwater. And so he was a legend nationally when he came into politics, and, and Trump came right de novo. Trump came in from nowhere. He had never run before, been a political figure before. I think there's much more about Wendell Wilkie 
stepping into the race in 1940 with Time Magazine and all those folks behind him uh, to Trump rather than Richard Nixon. But there's no question but this. In terms of populist conservatism and issues like that, and the China issue, the trade issue, taking the side of uh, the traditionalists and the culture wars and things like that, no matter where he came from, Trump seized upon a whole panoply of new issues, many of which I had run on in the 90s and failed, but that had reached maturity. And he ran against those against the field, the Republican field, and seized the nomination. And his achievement is extraordinary politically in terms of change, altering the character and the issues packet of the Republican Party. I mean, where's the party of balanced budgets and, uh, you, you know, and, uh, and cutting spending? It's non-existent. So, I mean, Trump is in his own right an historic figure, but I don't know that the comparisons with Richard Nixon are, are that valid. Nixon was basically a, a center-right candidate who, who, I mean, even Tom Wicker described him. Incidentally, I, Tom Wicker, I ran into him in the, in the men's room of the Comrade Hilton Hotel. He and I were wiping the tear gas out of our eyes <laughs> at, the, at different basins. <laughs> that was just before the, the police riot. But uh, and, and Tom Wicker described Nixon as one of us. In office, Nixon was very much a progressive president. And uh, I think John Price, who worked for Moynihan in our White House, is writing a book on the last liberal Republican. And you're out with a new book. How many have you written, Pat Buchanan? I've written 13, I believe. Yes, I have. So let's go back to the 1968 election and the victory speech by Richard Nixon, having lost eight years earlier to John F. Kennedy. Here's what he told supporters and his reference to his rival that year, Vice President Hubert Humphrey. I, as you probably have heard, have received a very gracious message from the Vice President uh, congratulating me for winning the election. I have also had a telephone conversation with him. And I thought I might share with you and also our television audience some of the thoughts that I expressed to him in that telephone conversation. I congratulated him for his gallant and courageous fight against great odds. I admire a fighter, and uh, he proved himself to be one. He never gave up, and uh, he gave us a good fight. I also told him that as he finished this campaign, that I know exactly how he felt. I know how it feels to lose a close one. <laughs> From November 1968 in Pat Buchanan, you were there. I was there, and I was up almost all the night, and much of it up in Nixon's suite. And what happened is when they, Illinois was called, I went downstairs and found a pad to crash in and went to sleep. And when I woke up, Nixon was already on Air Force One on his way to Key Biscayne. <laughs> so uh, I missed being at that event uh, that day. But Nixon, you know, uh, that's where uh, Julie, I guess, presented him, what was it, with the uh, Bring Us Together. Nixon said he'd seen that on the on the placard of the little girl in Deschler, Ohio, on that train ride. You know, Steve, on that train ride up there, I think it was from about Cincinnati all the way up to Toledo, we had seven or eight stops. At every stop, I'd been called back from the Agnew campaign to do the law and order releases. I must have written 
five or six or seven statements documenting the issue of crime and law and order with statistics that we dropped at every state, dropped at every stop. And that suggested that the issue was really current and rising at that point, the law and order crime issue on which uh, Nixon had taken the tough stand. It was amazing. Nixon Nixon did try to bring us together. And his, you take a look at his inaugural address, much more moderate, much more uh, peaceful sounding, much more bring us together than JFK's, you know, bear any burden speech. And Nixon tried his whole first year to do that and bring us out of the war in Vietnam, according to his timetable for peace with honor. And the real conflict, Nixon did not become a divisive president until the massive demonstrations of October and November of 1969, and the elites who had gone over to the anti-war movement attempted to break his presidency. People talk about Nixon dividing the country. He was trying to unify the country, but he realized by that fall that uh, he, had, he had failed to unify the country. So what he did and what we did was try to unify the country behind Nixon's policy of peace with honor and bring together a new silent majority which would eventually consist by 1972, not only of the Nixon 43% from 68, the Wallace 13%, but about eight, six or eight points of Humphrey's voters, final voters as well. And that great majority, great silent majority of 1972, that endured even through Watergate and, and Reagan twice won gigantic landslides using the same, same similar formula and the same states as did George H.W. Bush in 1988 until 1992, when after the Cold War, that was over and that was beginning to expire and Bill Clinton recognized he could put together a new majority. Two final points in our remaining minute, Pat Buchanan. First, when was the last time you spoke to Richard Nixon? Outside of his family, few people were closer to him than you. Well, the last time I spoke to him, I called him, I believe, in New York, and I said, uh, it's been a while since we talked, sir. And uh, and he said, I'm coming down to D.C., and I would usually see him at a hotel. It was over, I think, Washington Circle. Was it the Washington Hotel on Sheridan Circle, I think, or I believe. And it's around 23rd Street in D.C., and he would have me in there one after another. He'd have me and various other people in there for an hour and interrogate me on what's going on here, and, you know, and who's up, who's down, who's doing this, who's doing that, what are the issues. And it was then, it was about a week after that, or slightly slightly more maybe, that I got word that he had had his stroke. And I went out to his funeral, as did my wife, Shelley, who incidentally, Shelley worked for Richard Nixon, was with Nixon when he was vice president in 1959. She was in his office, right across the office, right from, of Senator John F. Kennedy. So uh, we all, we both went out to his funeral as we'd gone out to the First Lady's funeral. And as you pointed out, rightly so, 1968, a very different moment in our history than what we're dealing with today. But if you could look at one significant parallel, what would it be? I think it's the one parallel, one parallel I would say is basically that the national establishment, call it the liberal establishment, was on the run in 1968. I told Spig Brzezinski once, I said, you know, the American establishment, which seems so prepossessing and powerful, 
the best and the brightest, was broken on the wheel of Vietnam. And I think the American establishment is almost in a state of panic and rout right now. Everybody, the establishment is taking a knee. It is basically uh, accepting the demands of demonstrators and protesters and rioters, going along with the pulling down of statues of great Western men who have been flawed in their lives, but also produced our civilization and our culture and our country and made America by 1960 the greatest nation the world had ever seen. And so I see the same breaking of the establishment that we saw back in 1969 and 1970. And I think, uh, and where it's all going to lead, I'm not sure, because the country needs basically something like that. And this establishment is on the run. And in Trump, we've got more of a populist rebel president against the establishment. So I don't know. My view, looking at the Democratic Party, I I see it really as a a congregation, basically, almost of, uh, it's inclusive, but of various ethnic groups that tend to be bumping up against one another. You just wonder whether they can run the country. A look back at the 1968 campaign from an individual who had a front row seat to history, author, syndicated columnist, and Richard Nixon speechwriter in the 68 campaign, Pat Buchanan. We thank you for being with us. Thank you. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app. You can also find us on the web at cspan.org slash podcasts. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.